When you think about our relationship with God and God's care for and interest in human beings, have you ever, have you ever wondered what it looks like from on top, what the angels see? This is called a view from on top. I hate it when you do that. Hey, fear not, my friend. I bring you good news of... Okay, no news, just coffee. Thanks. Decaf, right? Yep, got you the unleaded stuff. I keep telling you, you gotta cut back on the caffeine. What's the real stuff gonna do? Shorten my lifespan? <laughs> Want me to cut down? I can cut down. Hey, come on, cut it out. Chill, bro. Just having a little fun. What is it with you and these people anyway? What do you mean? I don't know. It just seems like you like them or something. I mean, personally, I don't know what you see in them. I don't know what the boss sees in them. I mean, they're not exactly the sharpest tools in the shed, right? I'm aware they've had their moments. Still. Oh, haven't you heard the latest? Oh, I've been on assignment. Check this out. He wants to become one of them. One of who? You know, them. He does? I know. It's weird, right? So, what? He's gonna become a president or something like that? No, see. That's, that's the even crazier part, is he's gonna come as a, as a baby. He's even got the parents picked out, but no one's special. They're not even married yet. Do you realize that that means that, 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 that he's gotta get born? Like a, like a, like a human birth. Have you ever, have you ever seen that? <sighs> Yeah, well, he's always doing stuff you don't expect. You know what? I think it's a bad idea. Coming down as a baby? Doesn't he know what they're like? I mean, who knows what they'll do to him? I bet he's got a plan. He always does. Besides, we won't let anything bad happen to him. You really think they're worth the risk? You can never tell what humans are going to do next. One minute they're like, Oh, save me, Lord, I'll do anything. And the next minute they're sneaking off, going to do the same thing that got them into trouble in the first place. They're, 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 they're so... Oh. I get what you're saying. I do. But you know, as I've watched them, I've seen something. I've seen...
compassion, joy, a sense of wonder. And yeah, they're broken and messed up and they need someone to save them from themselves. So are they worth the risk? I don't know, I guess. But it doesn't really matter what we think. All that really matters is what he thinks. And he thinks they're worth it. Well, this morning we're going to talk about our heavenly identity. Who are we in God's eyes, and, and what is God leading us toward? Now, in order to do that, I'm going to read a portion of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you go back tonight and you, you open up your Bible and you read chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is addressing the whole concept of the resurrection of the body. What, what happens to us after we die if we're in faith in Christ? And this is just a section of that, starting with verse 42. So it will be with the resurrection of, of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven." And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Let's stop to pray for a moment. God, our Creator, I thank You for everybody who's in this room and everybody who's joining with us online this morning. Thank You that You care about our lives. You care about the people who matter to us. You care about the decisions we have to make. You care about the jobs that we do. It is amazing to us sometimes when we stop and think that you, the creator of the entire universe, love us enough that you take an interest in who we are, who we are becoming, in what kind of challenges that we face. You know when we hurt you know when we laugh, you know when we have joy, and you are involved in all of these things. As we stop and praise you for having an interest in human beings like us all around the world, we also ask that you would continue to pour out your Spirit upon us, give us understanding, give us knowledge, give us the wisdom to know how to apply those things to life in the right time, in the right way. We ask that your word, which is timeless and true and inspired, 
would work its way into our minds and into our hearts in such a way that we begin to think some of your thoughts and that we begin to act more and more in ways that you would act if you were here walking in our shoes. Help us to be your hands and feet in the world as we not only try to think through how your truth and your grace applies to each of us as individuals, but as we think about how your grace works its way out of us and begins to transform people and processes around us. Allow our church to be a beacon of light. We know we're not the only one. We're not the only church that tries to represent you here. But we want to be a beacon of light and of grace and of mercy to the culture around us and the world around us. Help us not to be changed by the culture as much as we help to transform the culture little by little by acting as your children, by acting in your love, by caring about others the way that you have cared for us. Lord, you know the burdens that are on each of our hearts, the things we've been praying about, the things that we ache over, the things we've prayed about for months or years or even decades that have not seen that moment of breakthrough that we long for. And we hand these things over to you. We lay them at your feet, and we ask that you would continue to work in the hearts of loved ones that we care about who've pushed you away or who've broken off relationships with those who love them. We pray for our neighbors, that they will come to know you with great joy and with great grace in their lives. We pray for our nation and for our president. We pray for wisdom in the midst of a growingly turbulent time throughout the world. And we pray for all of our leaders in Congress and in the Senate and here in our state government as well, that you will give them wisdom, that you will surround them with people who can speak truth and whisper that into their ears that you also give them the courage and the boldness to act rightly. We pray over the election that's coming up later this year, and whether we favor one party or the other, or whether we don't like any of the candidates, Lord, we ask that you would use this process and that you would lead us to a better place as a people and as a nation. Lord, guide us today. And whatever it is that you want to encourage us with that will come through your word and through this message, we ask that you will open our hearts and our ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Christopher Klein is a former writer for the Boston Globe, and he published an article this week about a bizarre plan to bring the first American president, George Washington, back to life after he died in 1799. Now, Washington had died from a, a throat ailment that caused his throat to swell up in such a way that he was unable to breathe very well, and uh, not only restricted his bleeding, but with the medical practices they had at the, at the time, the doctors came in and they did a, a series of bloodletting techniques. So they literally removed 40% of his blood from his body. And they, then he slept with windows open, and the temperature happened to drop dramatically that night, and, and so it was well below freezing. So this combination of poor airflow, less blood, and freezing temperatures, when they came into his room in the morning, he was frozen stiff and dead. Now, there's little doubt 
today that this common measure from that era added to the complications that hastened his death. Before we're tempted to write this guy off as a crackpot, we need to realize that the doctor who responded, or one of the doctors who responded, Dr. William Thornton, had studied dozens of cases of humans and animals who'd been revived from what they called states of suspended animation after appearing to, to be dead. In other words, they looked like they were dead and they were able to revive them. And even though this was the late 1700s, he was an early proponent of what we would call CPR today. And so he would literally try to breathe breath into the lungs and, and fill uh, that, or to beat on the chest and to, to restart the, the heartbeat. Although he's not the president's personal doctor, William Thornton had never practiced medicine in the United States after re, uh, arriving from the West Indies. And yet, he, he had all of these ideas. He, he was considered a polymath. The guy was a genius in a number of different disciplines. And so he raced across Virginia when he heard the news that Washington was dead. But when he got there, Washington's body was already frozen cold. But Thornton, nevertheless, met all the people who were in Washington's room and part of his entourage, and he pushed ahead with his conviction that if they allowed him to operate on Washington, he could bring him back to life. He was convinced that if he gave Washington a transfusion of lamb's blood, along with a tracheotomy where he'd open his throat and begin to, to push in air into his lungs, that this would allow Washington to come back to life. But in the end, George Washington himself had the final word. He had left instructions with his doctors and with his family the day before he died, and this is what the note said. I pray you to take no more trouble about me. Let me go off quietly. And so they did. And Dr. Thornton was not allowed to operate, and the president died in peace. But then this week, the story of what almost happened got published. Now, why tell you something like this? It's amazing how often we learn of strange ideas that people hold about what happens in those moments right after death. New Testament theologian Craig Keener writes that most pagans in the first century thought that the stars were divine. Most Jews of that era thought that the stars were angels, while a very powerful sect of Jews in Judea known as the Sadducees believed there was no hint whatsoever of any possible resurrection. Once you're dead, you're dead. So forget about people becoming angels or people becoming stars. All those ideas were rejected by them. These views are often popular in our day and in our culture. And the Apostle Paul was writing his letter to the first century uh, church in Corinth, and we find that those views are not all that different from a myriad of views that find a way to work their magic back in our culture and our thinking today. How many times have you heard people tell you that your deceased loved one is now one of God's angels? and watching over you, or that deceased spirits wander the earth like Jacob Marley in A Christmas Carol. Sadder still are the convictions of those who tell us there is nothing beyond the grave. So it's with all of these thoughts in mind and these confusing ideas that I bring up today's topic. As we continue this identity check series that we've been in through January and now well into February, today we're going to look at the biblical clues about our heavenly identity. What does the Bible say? What clues does it give us about who we are going to become and what our existence will be like after we die 
and yet we are reunited with Christ. So this week's topic is our heavenly identity. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. I'm glad that you're here today on this cold morning, and I want to welcome especially those of you who are watching us online from home or uh, on the road, wherever you are. Thank you all for prioritizing this time, and I'm glad that you're here. If you're watching online, I especially want to invite you to click on the connection card link if you're watching through our platform, or you can send me an email either way. If you're here in the room, you can scan that uh, Q code that's on the back of the chair in front of you, and we'd love to get in touch with you. I can't do that if I don't know your name or have some contact point, but uh, if you'd like to email it to me, send it to paul at northriverchurch.org. I'd love to begin the conversation with you about who we are and what we're doing and who you are and why God has sent you here. The question behind this message this morning is this, do we have any clues about our heavenly identity? And I believe the answer is yes to that. So I'd like to walk you through four heavenly identity clues that encourage us. Here's the first one. Bodily resurrection is central to Christian faith. That it's not a harebrained idea that's out there on the periphery of Christian faith. It's actually central to it. So the Apostle Paul, a few paragraphs earlier here in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, writes this thought in verse 12. But it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? As in Paul's day, there are many ideas in our culture about what happens after death. So back then, as I mentioned, some thought that the angels become stars in the sky, that some people thought that people become angels. I've heard several Christians advocate for this belief, even though there's no data to support it from the Scriptures or from anywhere else in Christian literature. Back then and again today, there are also anti-supernaturalists who are convinced that once a body hits the ground, it's over. It's a dirt nap and you're gone and just forget about it. This presents a need for us to know what hope Christians really have for life after death, both for ourselves, but also when we think about those loved ones who've already gone on ahead of us and who have left life as we know it. The Apostle Paul was well-informed as a cultural scholar in his day. So in this chapter, he anticipates typical questions and engages in a mock argument for our benefit. In a sense, what he's doing is he's raising the questions that he thinks that his opponents will have. He's not in the midst of a debate, but he's having an imaginary debate as he writes. And so he's not really trying to convince critics so much as to encourage Christians about what happens next after this life. And so he imagines the person who argues that resurrection is impossible as he writes these paragraphs. Now, it's interesting to note that years before the New Testament Gospels were written, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the central foundational piece of information that the church was declaring and that united the church as well. He refers to the fact that it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead. As if to say, everybody who's reading this letter in the first century already knows that this is what the church has been teaching since the time of the earliest apostles of Jesus. Paul knew a handful of key factors that were on display before the Gospels were written. Now, this is what Dr. Gary Habermas today calls the minimal facts argument. In other words, there are five basic truths that were evident before 
the Gospels themselves were written, and that all of these things took place between the time that Jesus died around 30 A.D. and 36 A.D. Let me walk you through them real quickly. Scholars today who are critics of the Bible, by the way, will agree on these five uh, details. Number one, that James, the brother of Jesus, had become a believer. This is a very significant detail because Jesus' brothers had mocked him, and they had not believed early, early on. And the Gospels tell us about that. In fact, when, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he looks down and he sees John the Apostle, and he entrusts his mother's care to John and says, this is now your son, and this is now your mother. And so Mary is entrusted to John. Why did Jesus do that? The Bible doesn't tell us. But it's very likely that Jesus wanted to entrust Mary who had taken in so much of this information from the time that the angel first visited her and told her she would have a son and he would be the son of God, that he wanted to entrust her care into the hands of somebody who was a believer rather than somebody who was not. And James was not yet at that point. What changed things for James? The resurrection. After the resurrection, and he sees his own brother whom he'd watched die on the cross and knew had gone into the third day in that tomb, James becomes a believer and becomes one of the leaders of the church, became the, the single most beloved leader of the Jerusalem church. Minimal fact number two, the earliest preaching of the apostles. The scholars call this the homologia, which means that the same teaching that was going out wherever the church began to spread. And what was at the heart of it all, the core of it all, as you look at the, the earliest preaching of the disciples... Jesus was deity, that he was the Lord, that he was the Son of God, that he died on the cross, and that he was raised from the tomb. Those three pieces of information were in every sermon that you hear from Peter and John and the earliest disciples. This much of the message is even recorded in secular history like the writings of Josephus, the Jewish general who wrote for the Romans. These central beliefs were uniting the church and later showing up in the gospel. The third was the creedal statements that appear in the New Testament epistles or letters which sometimes preceded the Gospels. One of these comes in verses 3 through 6 here in 1 Corinthians 15. There Paul opens that section by saying, For what I received I passed on to you. In other words, what I received from the Lord. And then he includes those three basic details that Jesus died on the cross, that Jesus was raised from the tomb, and that he, he is Lord. The minimum fact number four is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, soon to be known as Paul the Apostle. Saul was the most feared enemy of Christians. He was commissioned by leaders in Jerusalem to round up and persecute Christians, but he was also something of a scholar. He had studied at the feet of Gamaliel, who was one of the two most well-known rabbis of that first century era. And Paul knew multiple languages, he knew all the philosophies and the theories of the different cultures around them. And yet, Paul eventually had this experience on the road to Damascus as he was going to Syria to round up more Christians and to put them in prison when Jesus appeared to him in a bright light. And it totally revolutionized Saul's life. And soon he took on the, his surname, uh, Paul. His name was probably Saul Paulus as a Jew, but he became known as Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. 
And then the fifth critical fact is Paul's meeting with Peter and James in Jerusalem. Paul writes about this in Galatians 1.18. Three years after his conversion period, he met with Peter and James in Jerusalem and that he spent a number of days with them, I believe it was 15 days, and they were sharing their knowledge of the life of Jesus and their understanding of the gospel and they walked out in agreement. Those five details are conceded even by secular historians and all happened by the time of 36 AD. All the, what does that show us? That teaching about the resurrection was central to the church from the earliest times even before we have the written gospels in anybody's hands. So, so significant. Today, a lot of secular critics of the Bible claim that the stories of the Gospels and especially about the resurrection were things that were made up many years or many decades after the time of Christ. And yet even in secular history, what it shows is we can detail these five minimal facts that even the most secular scholars admit to that tell us about the earliest teaching of the church and the resurrection was central to it. Number two, you will have a heavenly body. You will. If you have faith in Christ, if, if you are alive to Jesus Christ, one day you will have a body that is different from the body you have right now. This is what Paul writes in verses 42 to 44, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, meaning it will die, is raised imperishable. It will not be able to die. It is sown in dishonor in this life, but in the next life it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. And then he concludes with this thought. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. All right, let's break this down. Paul builds this teaching on the illustration of a seed. Seeds come from living plants and fruit, and when those plants and fruit die, seeds fall into the ground, and yet those seeds buried in the ground ultimately bear fruit. A new sapling comes up, and the new sapling bears fruit and new seeds that come from it. So before there is fruit, seeds turn into sapling, then trees or plants. So it is with acorns that become oak trees, and on and on and on. This seed illustration tells us four things about spiritual bodies. In this life, the seed is sown as perishable, but it's raised as imperishable. In this life, it is sown in dishonor, meaning there are all kinds of dishonorable things that may happen to us. We're common and ordinary, but the resurrection body is raised in glory. It will be something greater. The seed in this life, or the body in this life, is sown in weakness, but the resurrection body is raised in power, the same power that raised Jesus from the grave on that third day. And in this life, we are given a natural body, but it will be raised as a spiritual body, meaning it's not subject to the limitations that you and I know right now. Looking at the opening and closing statements of this paragraph, we learn a couple of things. Paul starts off the paragraph by saying, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. And then he concludes that paragraph by saying, if there is a natural body, there will be a spiritual body. What is Paul doing here? He is assuring us that if you are alive in Christ and following His way, you will have a body in heaven, but it will be a different body. 
I've often wondered, you know, what body do I get? Do I get the 22-year-old body that was really in great shape when I just stopped playing college football? Or do I get this 64-year-old body? I'd like to have the 22-year-old body. But you know what? Paul's answer is neither. You're going to have a new body. You're going to have a, a spiritual body that is akin to Jesus after he rose from the grave. And he is assuring us of these things. He knows that we worry about these things. He knows that as we get older, we, we start to think more about the promises that are here in the Scriptures. And what are we in for? It will be a spiritual body. This body will be imperishable, unable to die, raised in glory and raised in God's power. This also means our loved ones who die in the Lord do not become angels. I'm sorry for anybody who's held on to that thought and you felt that was comforting, but there's just no biblical support for that idea. In fact, if you read the letter to the Hebrews, it says that we are given a place that is higher than the angels because God cares for us in a different way. We will not become disembodied spirits who are roaming the earth like Jacob Marley, and we will not become stars in the sky. We will become something better will become like Jesus. Here's the third identity clue. Our bodies will be like the risen Jesus' body. Verse 49 says, And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, that's Adam, we're all descended from Adam and Eve, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Who's the heavenly man? Jesus, the one who came from heaven, took his place among us as one of us. So, in this paragraph, and especially in this concluding verse, we find Jesus compared with Adam. Jesus is called the second or the last Adam. The picture here is of God the Creator breathing life into Adam and making him a living being, which is why here he's called the first Adam. By the way, the, the, the name Adam in Hebrew means man. So, his name really isn't all that special. He's just called man. But Jesus is listed here as the last Adam who gives a life-giving spirit to others, a man who gives life-giving spirit rather than a man who's only receiving a life-giving spirit from God. Paul points out that the natural comes first, then the spiritual. They are contrasted again as the earthly man and the heavenly man. The first man was made of dust of the earth. The second man was from heaven, the heavenly man. So Paul's argument is, so it is with us. We all share the earthly physical life given to Adam that has now been passed on to us, but only those who have new life in Christ are alive to the things of heaven. And Paul gives Christians a new label, those who are of heaven. I've never noticed this before. And all the times I've read through 1 Corinthians, this is the first time that this jumped out at me. That's the way that God sees us today, those who are of heaven. I want you to do something that's going to feel weird. Turn around and say to the person who's closest to you, you are of heaven. You are of heaven. If you are alive in Christ, not only do you have the citizenship in heaven that we talked about last Sunday, but Paul is saying you belong there. And when you have the foretaste of the Holy Spirit being alive in you, you are in the process of being remade and in God's eyes, you belong there. You are of heaven. You are not 
just an earthly human being who's destined only to walk on this planet or for this time or for this moment. You are of heaven. Wow. That kind of blows me away. I, I, I'm, I have been taught to think of Jesus as being the one from heaven. But what Jesus does when he makes us alive is he gives us that seed that will one day bear fruit and we become the fully developed, fully known, fully manifested person of heaven. You are of heaven jumps off the page at me. He concludes this section by saying that we will also bear the image of the risen Jesus. Genesis tells us that, of all, that all of humankind already bears the image of God through our physical human birth. That's important. It means that no, no matter how marred that image may become due to our own sinfulness or our own corruption, every human being that we can ever meet is endowed with dignity because of the image of God. It's why we care about all kinds of people, people who look like us, people who don't look like us, people that we will, will meet, people that we won't meet, people who are rich, who are poor, who are educated or uneducated. They all bear the image of God, and therefore there's a dignity to human life. It's very, very important. However, something greater is in store, and that is the image of the risen Jesus that those who are alive in Christ are also being molded little by little and changed and transformed to become more like Jesus. And so it fits that when the time comes to exist in the kingdom of heaven, we will have spiritual bodies that fit that new reality. Think for a moment about the image of the risen Jesus. This is the body that rose from the grave on the third day after dying such a public death. This was a body that was no longer subject to sin, pain, disease, or death. This body was completely victorious. This body was not subject to physical laws. He went through locked doors and appeared in the room with the disciples. And then he would disappear. And he rose into the heavens after those 40 days of graduate level training. He rose with the clouds. This is the body that Paul is saying that you and I will have one day like that. And then there's a fourth clue that Paul gives us. This will happen in a flash. I love this thought. It'll happen in a flash. This isn't a transformational process that's slow. It's going to happen in an instant. Verse 50, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. So he's unveiling something that had been hidden before. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of the eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. Anybody here longing for change in your life? Wish you could change the whole deal? Yeah, God knows that. The Apostle Paul knew that when he wrote this. We will all be changed. We are used to the slow process of change and transformation in this life. To inherit the kingdom of God fully, though, the perishable must give way to the imperishable. In other words, we're, we're going to die. We're all going to die unless Jesus returns first. 
but that gives way to something that God has yet planned for us. God has a resurrection body intended for you that is fit for heaven, that is fit for eternity. Every once in a while, I will meet with somebody who says to me, Pastor, why should I want to live forever? When I think of life and everything, I don't want to live forever. Why does the Bible talk about eternal life? Who wants that? Ever have a conversation like that with somebody? Now, when we say that, I'm not picking on anybody in particular, but when we say that, we're limiting our imagination to the physical experiences of life as we know it now, encumbered by the limitations of our natural bodies. But eternity in the kingdom of God is not intended for these bodies. C.S. Lewis once wrote, you don't have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. What that means is the part of you that makes you uniquely you is inside of you. It's, it's your spirit, it's your mind, it's your soul, which will not change. The body is temporary housing. The body encloses your soul. You are an embodied soul. But this is also a reminder that you are not your physical body. Our natural bodies are wonderful, but they're temporary and they're perishable. Better yet, there's a resurrection body coming that is a reflection of our true identity designed to embody forever your eternal soul. Perfect match. The mystery is that we will all be changed in a flash. Paul doesn't tell us exactly when this will happen. He does tell us what will happen, that we will be changed to be like Jesus in the twinkling of an eye. What's a twinkling of an eye? It's faster than a wink. The twinkling of an eye is almost imperceptible. At the command of God, it just takes place. And this body will no longer be subject to disease, the ravages of time, or to death. So Paul ends this chapter with this poetic statement. He says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? What he's saying is, if this is what God truly has for us, and if Jesus is the foretaste of what we are going to experience, the sting of death goes away. Death has no victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. Theologian Craig Keener notes that it appears that Paul is adapting words from Isaiah 25, verse 8, where it says, he will swallow death forever. Paul changes that, kind of morphs it a little bit to say, death is swallowed up in victory. We all know the fullness of this victory when Jesus returns and when in the twinkling of an eye, we are transformed to be fully like Him. Here's the big idea this morning. Jesus' bodily resurrection is the foretaste of our own spiritual bodies designed for souls who, intended, who, who inherit the kingdom. God has so much that is good in store for you. He writes this to encourage us, to make us look with wonder as what is coming and if you know that you've been given the Spirit of God, which is alive in you today, you will one day be, be, be given 
a body that matches your soul and that alive spirit forever. Jesus is the one who shows us what this is like. Jesus is the model that we look to. And we look forward to what God will one day do. I hope that you find these words encouraging. They are just clues that we can put together as we try to think through the wonders of what is coming next. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for these wonderful clues that get us thinking about and imagining what is yet in store. Thank you for not only giving us the possibility of of knowing that Jesus was raised from the dead, but you also give us the hope to look forward to that one day all who put our faith and trust in him, all who turn away from our sins and toward him, will live in the same way that he has. We look forward to these spiritual bodies, these resurrection bodies that you give us. We thank you that that doesn't happen in this world, but it, it keeps us holding on for what happens beyond. Thank you for raising Jesus from the dead. Thank you for making this part of the central teaching of the church, not something that's just for a few or, or something that's optional, but something that we look forward to, that one day there'll be a reason for us to want to live forever because we will know the joys of eternity with you and with each other. So thank you for words that encourage in Jesus' name. Amen.